the acquisition of knowledge and the acquisition of wisdom are really two different paths and schools ignore the path towards wisdom insight enlightenment understanding and concentrate on the path towards knowledge whereas both paths need to be pursued with real energy I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Access to quality education is a huge issue globally, and parents everywhere want the best for their children. In Australia, where large areas of the country have been in a hard lockdown due to COVID-19, schools have been closed to students for the best part of the year, and parents have been forced to homeschool their children. Some children have thrived and some have suffered, unable to effectively engage in homeschooling and falling behind. This against the backdrop of scandal after scandal involving elite private schools and the racist, sexist and homophobic behaviour of their students has reignited the ongoing debate about the merit of federal government funding for private schools. Personally, I think the debate runs deeper. It goes to a question of equitable access to alternative forms of education. Public education systems are built to accommodate the majority, and as much as it tries, the system struggles to meet the needs of children who don't fit the norm, have different learning needs, or those who are neurodiverse. Parents of these children seek out alternatives and are often faced with the difficult decision of scraping together enough money to place their child in a private school in the hope of a better outcome, or left with their knowledge that their child might be better off with an alternative education, but they're simply unable to afford it. I've invited acclaimed Australian author John Marsden onto the show today to talk about alternative education and in particular the school he founded and is the principal of, Candlebark, a Peter Seven school on what may be the world's largest campus, over 1,100 acres just north of Melbourne. Candlebark's motto is take care, take risks. Full disclosure here, after some pretty awful experiences in multiple public schools, my two children attend Candlebark. Education is a contentious issue and one that ignites debates about affordability, equity of access and privilege, and rightly so. I'm a strong public education advocate. I believe that the government should invest heavily in creating a public education system that effectively caters to the needs of all children, not just the majority. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, John. Yeah, thanks, Lee. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm I'm grateful for your time. Let's jump in. I'm going to ask you something I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Oh, wow. It's complicated because I think I grew up in such a strict middle-class, classic Australian 1950s household where there was a certain sense of duty which people didn't think about. They just automatically did what was expected, which meant going to church every Sunday was a core belief or practice. And then belonging to service organisations, like my father belonged to not only Rotary, but also Lions and the Masonic Lodge, all three of them, which might have set some sort of record, but he was a country town bank manager. And I think it was seen as good business practice to belong to all of them. And so you'd go along to working bees and um, church faiths and stuff like that. And as a wolf cub, (laughs) I uh, I was doing my annual Bob a Job routine where I'd 
go and knock on different doors and offer to do jobs for them and get paid sixpence or whatever for the job. And then that would all be contributed to some charity. So it was all done in a kind of robotic way, mindless way, really. It was all done for good motives, I suppose, but no one really thought about the motives or questioned where the money actually went or whether it was doing anything tangibly or intangibly useful. How did that sense of doing good or what was good evolve over your lifetime as you grew up? I had this kind of moment of, uh, in early adolescence, of, I don't know what I'd call it, enlightenment, where (laughs) I was standing near my book lockers. This sounds a bit unlikely and corny, but it's absolutely true. And uh, it was like a huge explosion occurred in my head and suddenly I thought maybe my parents aren't the best people in the world and maybe they're not perfect and maybe the school is not the um, wonderful virtuous institution it claims to be and maybe there's no God and that all happened in about uh, 40.8 seconds (laughs) very roughly and um, yeah it was like the world was turned upside down and at about the same time not coincidentally I was reading Catcher in the Rye I was introduced to Bob Dylan's music by a friend who lent me Mr. Tambourine Man on a 45 disc. And uh, I think between J.D. Salinger and Bob Dylan, I started to see the world in a new way and a more abstract way, I suppose, and a more political way and a more thoughtful way. And, yeah, just questioning home, school and church all in one breathtaking moment just started me off on a whole different path. How would you say that these days you express doing good in your daily life? Oh, this could get wanky because <laughs> it's very easy to sort of say, oh, well, I give money to the Red Cross or something. But yeah, I do give a slab of money to Oxfam uh, regular intervals. And that's because I'm very aware that Australia, despite all the claims we make about Australia and all the uh, pretenses we uh, enjoy and all the um, illusions we have, Australia is a very wealthy country. So to be poor in Australia is no fun. It's not fun to be poor anywhere. But no one's starving to death in Australia. And the medical care is generally good, but there are certainly certain communities and sectors of our society where it's not as good as in other sectors and so on. And so we need to be aware of all those things and be working hard to redress those things. But compared to the situation of people in many other parts of the world, we are very, very well off. On a local level, running a school, you have the opportunity to be anywhere between cruel and kind all day, every day, and you're in a powerful position. And uh, to be able to use that position thoughtfully and generously is obviously preferable. So I try my best to do that. But uh, I still have moments where I'll snap at someone or get angry or act in a way that they might see as uncharitable, for want of a better word. I would say in 15 years of running a school, a lot has changed for me personally along the way. And um, I don't seem to get as angry as I did 15, 20 years ago. And I don't seem to um, be as thrown off balance by other people's actions or words. I kind of can be fairly uh, philosophical about it all and um, listen to it all and react in a way that I think is thoughtful and uh, appropriate. 
Whereas, yeah, 20 years ago, I probably would have been much more impetuous and hot-headed. You've talked about having a difficult educational experience yourself, and I've read that you've described it as barely surviving and, and that you spent some time pondering the question, why does school have to be so crap? And I have to admit to having the same repeated thoughts throughout my own educational experience. Do you have the answer now? Why is the majority of schools so crap? Yeah, it's a huge question. I think it's partly that schooling in Australia is very much a middle-class experience with middle-class people, including me, teaching students middle-class values, attitudes and ways of thinking. And I think that all came to me again in a bit of a flash. I have these mental flashes, apparently. Um, but I was sitting in a lecture theatre doing the education course, and they were talking about language and how if a student says something like, um, we's going to uh, the movies tomorrow, and you correct them and you say, no, the correct expression is we are going to the movies tomorrow, not we's going to the movies tomorrow, because that's bad English to say we's going to the movies. Then what happens if that kid goes home that afternoon and one of their parents says to them, oh, we's going to uh, go and see your grandmother on Saturday? So what you're doing is actually causing a real sort of emotional turmoil potentially in that child because we're saying that your parents use bad English. And for young children in particular, that's an ugly message and a, an unbearable message in many ways for them to hear. And it did make me sit there and think, gee, well, we really, I really have to think about the values that I transmit as a teacher and the way I talk to students and what I tell them. So that was a big factor, but um, there's been plenty of others. My primary school days, many of them were pretty good, like grade four and grade six were both terrific years. Grade three was an absolute horror story with a teacher who I'd say was probably a psychopath looking back. She was so vicious. Secondary school, yeah, it was tough. It was um, very militaristic and uh, authoritarian school with what they called strict discipline, a word that's always worth unpacking because it means so many different possible things to different people. And their idea of discipline was simply giving orders which had to be obeyed immediately. I remember uh, one of the early hymns that we sang all the time at Sunday school was Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And uh, that was very much the creed of the school I went to, which was a Christian school. So, yeah, trust and obey. I didn't trust and I didn't obey. And uh, that caused havoc because I was nearly expelled on a number of occasions and probably should have been. <laughs> How did that experience for you translate into the desire to start your own school? Huge. From 15 onwards, roughly, I was sitting in class thinking, gee, why don't they change that rule from this to that? And why don't they abolish that rule because it doesn't work? And why don't they start trying this approach? Because I think that would be more effective. And a lot of it was just boredom. I was so bored by the teaching, which was so abysmal, that I would just sit there dreaming of whatever, trips around the world and uh, going into outer space and so on, but also how to improve schools. And so, yeah, it started as far back as that. In many ways, I do the opposite of the practices that I saw and the values that were preached at that school. So we try to have a school where 
there is a good relationship between teachers and students that's absolutely fundamental. And not to just have recourse to judgment and punishment when something goes wrong, but to think about why it went wrong and to think about the best approach to avoiding those situations in future. And so we do just do a lot of talking. That's our main uh, sort of fallback position. When there's a problem, we have long conversations or short conversations, depending on what's happened and the severity of it and the people involved, their personal nature and attributes. So why not attempt reform from within the education system? Why go out and start your own school? Yeah, well, I did work in the education system for many, many years as a teacher, and um, I had one terrific school where I worked for four years. That was great. But I also had three bloody awful schools, which were just appalling. And one of them was Geelong Grammar at the main campus, which featured in the Royal Commission and all the uh, inquiries into child abuse, because there were things going on that were awful. And I knew things were wrong, and I could identify some of the things that were going wrong, but I felt completely powerless to do anything about them. And when I tried to do anything about them, I was um, very quickly made aware, <laughs> made aware that uh, that was not welcome. I remember going to the principal of the school about one teacher who I had seen treating a student in the most horrifically racist and contemptuous manner. And the very next morning, I went to the headmaster and told him what I'd seen, thinking that this would end the career of that teacher and realizing that something momentous was happening. And I was really frightened to 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 precipitate this, uh, what I thought was going to be a huge event. And the headmaster gazed out the window and then finally said, uh, that's terrible. Uh, in, in, that was his summation of what I told him. And I said, yes, it is. And there was another long silence. And finally, I said, well, I'll leave it with you. And he said, yes, thank you. And they were the only words he spoke in the interview. And I left the office and that teacher, I don't know if any action was ever taken against him, but he was still teaching at the school until he retired many years later. And he retired covered with glory and honours. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a situation where, I, along with a few other people, I was left feeling powerless. And I suppose over time I started to recognise that some institutions are incapable of being changed from the inside because the people who are in them are um, incapable of change and you've got a real problem when that's the case. I think teaching attracts people for good reasons in many cases and bad reasons in many other cases. And the bad reasons include a lust for power, an inability to live life as an adult. And so school becomes the place that you run away from the world and hide in. And also a uh, very rigid way of thinking and a rigid set of values, which are so inflexible that they can't be changed. And so people might think, for example, that if a student doesn't have his socks pulled up to the correct height, then that's a serious transgression and there needs to be very serious consequences to teach him that uh, those socks just have to be at the stipulated height. Otherwise, civilization is in deadly peril. The important things in life, right? Absolutely, yeah, yep. <laughs> You've described Candlebark as somewhere between a Steiner school and the Simpsons, and as a parent of children at Candlebark, and also a product of the public school system myself, 
I can say that the educational experience for children at Candlebark is so vastly different from anything that I personally experienced or saw for my children while they were in the public system. And I would even go further to say that it's incredibly different from the educational experience of the vast majority of private school students in Australia too. John, why is this the right way to educate in your view? Well, because it rests upon a couple of very simple precepts and one of them is that all students should have as many first-hand experiences as possible. So the idea of being in front of a screen when you're at home and then sitting in a classroom passively while you're at school makes for not only a boring childhood and a boring adolescence, but it makes it fairly likely that you'll be a boring adult because <laughs> you won't have anything to talk about. And I started to think this way after becoming more and more bored by conversations with kids and teenagers. I started analysing the conversations like a sociologist and think, and I, I realised that so much of the conversations were about what they'd seen on TV the night before or a movie that they'd just seen. Or if they were telling personal stories, it was about stuff that their parents or grandparents had done. And I started to think, don't they have any stories of their own? And I started to realise that, no, they don't. I mean, for many kids nowadays, an excursion is the trip to the mall to do the shopping on a Saturday afternoon. And that's about as far as they get. And to me, that makes for a pretty awful start to life. So first-hand experiences are crucial because they help us to to test ourselves and to develop an interesting personality and to get the foundation stones for our lives laid in a way that makes them strong and uh, effective and useful. So that was one thing. And the second thing was to employ teachers who have lived adventurous lives, who have not just gone straight from school to university and back to school to become teachers, but have, um, I don't know, swum down the Amazon backwards or something or uh, climbed Mount Everest naked. And uh, I haven't actually got teachers who've done either of those things yet, but I'm still hoping. But no, if they've um, published a book of poetry or they've composed a symphony or they've uh, gone canoeing down the snowy river, then that's the kind of stuff I look for. And I look for people who've got passions, who've uh, travelled either internally or externally or both, and people who can respond in an adult way when there's a crisis or a difficulty. So people like Donald Trump, to get political for a moment, who is very quickly recognisable as a pretty typical four-year-old in the way that he responds to difficulties. He has a tantrum and uh, talks about himself obsessively and is interested in nothing but how other people regard him. And that's yeah, the way most four-year-olds are. It's just a stage of life that they should move through and continue to grow as they get older. But um, sometimes people do get arrested at that age. And I think that's through no fault of his own. I think that's what's happened to him. And we're all suffering as a result. Those two simple things, to have teachers who are mature and adventurous and creative and to have lots of first-hand experiences for students, they are pretty powerful starting points for for a school. One of the things that amazed me about Candlebark, I imagined when I started it, that it would take, I had in mind between two and four years to establish the culture that I wanted to achieve in the school. And it took um, about four minutes, like by 
I don't know, lunchtime on the first day, I thought, boy, this is going well. It's like we have everyone seems so kind of on the same page with what they want and the way they're behaving and their their attitudes. And we just didn't have a problem. And it just went, I mean, we have problems, of course, but um, it did start in an incredibly positive way and it's continued to take an incredibly positive path. Counterpark might be the largest school campus in the world. You're on 1,100 acres there in of mostly natural bush, more than 60 kilometres of tracks and trails and countless creatures, both native and domestic farm animals. How do you think or, or what do you see being immersed in nature on a daily basis as an impact on students' education? How does it how does it support what you're trying to achieve at Candlepark? Well it's great, but it's a kind of incidental benefit and it's not the it's not mandatory. You can establish a school in an attic in a in a city terrace house and still have a wonderful school because you just have to adapt to your surroundings. And so we take advantage of the fact that we're on this big bush block. It's just a lovely thing, lovely feature that we can use to the maximum. But I do believe, having said that, that people have to get their hands dirty. And that's both literal and metaphorical. So the idea that kids are out there feeding farm animals and doing the gardening in the school's organic vegetable garden and the fact that they're going on bushwalks and cross countries and the fact that they're playing in mud and they're playing in rain and they're playing in the creek i think that's incredibly important and a wonderful thing but you can have that without having a school located in the bush you can take them out of the school if you're in the city to um, bush areas to national parks to state forests and so on but many australians really never leave the suburbs and uh So there's plenty of them who've never got their hands dirty in any sense of the word. So, yeah, there's a lot of research in the last couple of decades about the importance and power of nature and contact with nature for children. And I guess I've always just instinctively felt that that is important. We did a lot of bushwalking when I was a kid and uh, just took it for granted that you go out into the bush and you step aside to avoid treading on an echidna that's scurrying past or you lift a, you lift up a rock and there's a snake underneath that was just part of our childhood life which um never struck us as some sort of freakish event it was just yeah it was natural <laughs> yeah and i can say that you know my kids come home filthy every day from school <laughs> And that's, I guess, the beauty of not having a uniform to worry about getting getting dirty. They come home absolutely filthy, like they've had a great day in the mud. Yeah, we recommend to people that they shop at op shops for their children's school clothes because they will get muddy. And one of the things we do is ignore the weather. So this idea that you all panic and rush the kids indoors if there's a few drops of rain it's just unnatural, middle class again, and and incredibly unhelpful to young people's development into effective adults because you have to feel at one with nature without getting too metaphysical about it, but we have to feel uh, that nature and our, us are not automatically enemies. We're not at war with each other. We all can work together in harmony and live together in harmony. So, yeah, whether it's hailing or snowing or raining or whether the sun's shining, these kids are outdoors and um, they're climbing trees, they're rolling down hills, they're chasing each other for miles around the school. They're, they're incredibly fit. 
we only have we don't have obese kids at the school. We have an obese principal, unfortunately, but um, I'm trying uh, not hard enough to do something about that but uh, but the um yeah they're a fit looking bunch of kids and that's because they just run so much yeah john is there an evidence base to tell us that this model of education works yeah i've written the book and <laughs> no there is there's plenty of um evidence but it's not convenient for bureaucrats and people who are I mean, to go back to what I was saying before about teachers, the people who are attracted to teaching are often attracted to it because they succeeded in the existing system. They got to university and they got that degree and they got the right to become teachers and to join that profession. And so they don't have a vested interest in changing the system because it worked for them. And so they're very comfortable with the structures and the practices that have marked Western education for more than 100 years. So... The odds of getting it changed are greatly lengthened by that fact alone. So there's heaps of books, and they're great books, and I've got bookcases in this very room where I'm sitting now, which are full of these books. A lot of them are memoirs, but they're not just uh, straightforward biographies. They're people reflecting on education and uh, how they've changed it and what those changes have, have meant. And yet these things continue to be seen as sideline practices, as alternatives that that are for the um, esoteric few and not suitable for the mainstream. And I've noticed that when we have educators come here for tours of the school, which happens very, very frequently, and they're people from interstate and all over the world, I can tell you the script. They'll walk around all day just marvelling and saying lovely things. And then at the end of the day, they'll say to me, oh, it's wonderful. And then it goes like this. Oh, we just wish we could do things like this at our school. And I'm waiting for the, the three-letter word. But, you know, the, the authorities would never allow it or the parents would never put up with it or we'd be sued or we couldn't get insurance or they have the standard three or four excuses as to why they can't possibly implement any of the things we do. And those excuses can be very quickly shown as spurious but people don't want to listen to my expositions on why those excuses actually are, are not uh, valid. So, yeah, I think we're dealing with a deep conservatism and the resistance to change rather than any real reasons for not doing things differently. You know, we know the government here in Australia collects data through things like NAPLAN, but for me, I'm more interested in how are students that spend their educational career in Candlebark and, and the high school, Alice Miller, how are they doing in life compared to their peers? What's different for them? Oh, wow. You've asked that question at the right time because I got an email yesterday from one of them, which I'll just dig out of my inbox. And uh, this was just completely out of the blue from a student who'd been here for about four years. And she's now at uni and she's... Uh, doing performing arts, actually. But she wrote, uh, I know the school's motto is take care, take risks, and it truly did that for me. I was only there for a few years, but I have found the journeys and hardships I faced at Candlebark have followed me through life. I deeply miss sailing down the Murray with Sam the Bushman, it's one of her teachers, and playing hunger games at sleepovers with Donna and company. I miss the girls' group we had and Sean's science lessons. 
I won't even get started on how much I missed the cow on the art room ceiling. <laughs> I just wanted to write you this and say thank you. I have grown into such a developed, well-rounded person with awesome stories and adventures, most of which I had at Candlebark. And I will be forever grateful to you and all the teachers I got to know and love for helping guide me through everything while I was there. So that's only half the email. And I should say for the benefit of your listeners that this is not something that Lee and I planned beforehand. It was just completely spontaneous that I could pull that email up so quickly and read from it. But that's typical of the feedback we get. So the students, they do a variety of different things. And yes, there are people doing medicine at Melbourne University, which is the ambition that some parents have for their children. But there are also people who are doing building apprenticeships or have done them, in fact, finished them. Uh, cabinet makers. Uh, there's the guy who's leaving at the end of this year to become, I don't quite understand this, but something to do with uh, learning how to maintain and nurture artificial, uh, not artificial, grass surfaces for sporting venues. And uh, so we've got the full range of different paths that people have taken. But as far as I know, there's no one out there who's been at the school who's now just, I don't know, sitting in a pub and having their 14th beer for the day and talking boringly about what they're going to do when they're 40 or 50 or 60. They're all um, living their lives. And sure, they have obstacles and uh, difficulties like everybody does in life, but um, they seem to have an inner strength, which is what we aim to achieve. And that seems to stand them in good stead. Both Candlebark and Alice Miller have pretty long waiting lists and people move interstate and even internationally to attend both schools. Why do you think people come so far and uproot their whole lives just to come to a school? I don't know. I wish they wouldn't because it's such a, <laughs> it's such a burden. It's such a responsibility. I think, oh my God, what if this doesn't work? They've sold their house in America or Spain or whatever and moved here. Yeah, I think it's because the model is attractive to some people, people who think about education really in a thoughtful way, are more likely to be interested in a school like this. Because for many people, choice of school is geographic entirely. So all they do is say, right, the school's down the road and around the corner. So that's where our child will be going. And they don't really question it. They just think that that's the automatic thing you do. You take, send your child to the local school. So, yeah, it's good if they can think a bit more broadly than that. There was a conversation I had with a woman who wanted to enroll her child, and I said, why do you want to choose this school? Why would you choose this school for your child? And she said, because the existing system is broken. And I've never forgotten those five words. I think it's five. I thought it was an incredibly succinct summary of why the schools that we have are not good enough. They range from mediocre to abysmal. And there's only a few that I would call brilliant or outstanding. And I say that with some authority because I've been to between two and 3,000 schools doing workshops and talks over many years as an author in residence. And in some of them, I'd spend up to six weeks. In others, I'd uh, be there for half a day. And some I went back to regularly. But I did get a pretty strong sense of what works and what doesn't work and which schools had a good vibe and which ones didn't, you could usually tell within a few minutes. And it was horrifying to me to see just how mediocre and lackluster 
so much of Western education is, but not entirely surprising when you look at the historical path of Western schooling, because it's really what we're seeing now is a direct product of the Industrial Revolution, when all the adults were needed to work in the factories and the coal mines. And if you need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of adults to put them to work on those machines for 12 or 14 hours a day, you've got to do something about their kids. And so what they did was to take the greatest number of kids possible, allocate the smallest possible number of adults to look after them and shove them into the smallest space that, that they could get away with and uh, just get them out of the way. It was like babysitting, really. And we've really stuck to that model pretty much consistently since then. It's been played with and uh, fiddled with and improved to some extent, but there's been no attempt to completely restructure the way we approach schooling. So, John, what's the entry criteria to attend Candlebark or Alice Miller? How do you make decisions about who gets to come? Oh, we just take them, really. It's um, Occasionally, if we think that a parent is really just aggressive and completely out of tune with what we're trying to achieve or with the ideology of the school, we'll discourage them, but that's pretty rare. I think my favourite was the woman who wanted to book her child in in year eight, and during the conversation that emerged that this would be her daughter's 14th school, and I said, well, I think the best thing you could do is leave her at the school she's at now and let her have some continuity. And she then sent me some correspondence she'd had with the deputy principal of that school, where he had written to her a very fair, I thought, very courteous, very reasonable letter saying, look, uh, let's have a meeting. I'm happy to talk about the problems that you've described. We don't agree with you with uh, all the issues you've raised, but we do agree with some and we're happy. I'm happy to talk this through. And her response was to write back to him and say, um, when you've corrected the spelling and grammatical mistakes in your letter, I'll reconsider it. But until then, I'm not prepared to pay it any attention. And she sent me this as some sort of example of what a good parent she was or something. I don't know what she was trying to prove, but uh, we didn't proceed with the application because I felt that it didn't matter where the poor daughter was. She was going to be subjected to uh, these awful pressures. And we do have parents, like every school does, parents with mental health problems, and uh, sometimes they can be quite extreme, and that's very likely to be damaging to the children and the family. You've talked about that before, about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you see the school day as an opportunity to help shape the life of a child that may be experiencing trouble or trauma in the home. Is that true? Yeah, I don't know about shape the life, but we... First and foremost, I see it as an island, a sanctuary for some children whose home lives are so chaotic and so uh, disturbed that this gives them a chance to be in a place for seven hours a day where there is consistency, there is a compassionate and fair and thoughtful response from adults most of the time. I mean, we're not perfect. We'll snap with anger at kids occasionally, but nevertheless, we're not... um, extreme in any way. So it does at least give them somewhere where they can draw breath. And for me, that was the function of school, even though, as you've said, I had a shocking time through most of my secondary schooling, certainly the first four years of secondary. It was still better than home because home was so uh, traumatic and um, abusive that school, which (laughs) which was also traumatic and abusive, was a better place for me. 
and I appreciated that. It's terribly sad and troubling to see kids who are six, eight years old and who you feel are very likely to have difficult adult lives because they're already so damaged that uh, I would think that they they would never make a complete recovery. There's no kind of total cure or perfect cure for certain uh, traumas that have been suffered. But nonetheless, you can still make a lot of progress and you can still have a life which is very rich in many ways, but you will probably struggle with certain aspects right through your life. I had a lot of psychotherapy, which I think helped me tremendously, but there are still things in my life which I find difficult and that's I can very easily understand now how it relates back to the parenting that I received. There's an ongoing discourse about public versus private education and calls to defund private schools in Australia emerge fairly often, mostly after public incidents that generally involve elite private school students. One of the arguments is that private schools teach privileged kids more privilege. What do you say to this? Yeah, I think private schools can be fairly criticised for the inordinate amount of uh, extravagance that they often show in the way that they build incredibly over-the-top buildings that might cost $45, $55, 65000000 million for a theatre and a sports centre or something of that ilk. And I'd be quite happy for government funding for private schools to cease when they are to those wealthy schools. There are battling private schools around the country that are uh, low-key and understated and uh, don't attempt to provide that sort of level of extravagance. And so government funding for them can be justified. But uh, if the entire system was changed into a state system, I'd be fine with that as long as it was a good system. And the problem is, at the moment, it's not. So if the state schools could be brought up to the level of Candlebark and Alice Miller, which sounds boastful, but it's um, there's plenty of evidence that we are succeeding where other schools aren't. If they were all able to function at that level, then, yeah, I'd be very happy to close down these private schools as well as see the others close down. I think one of the things that government schools are failing to do is to articulate strongly and even forcefully what they're doing and why they're doing it and their intentions, their goals in doing it. And so they get bullied by parents and various other pressure groups into trying to please everybody. And that, I feel, is a very dangerous path because one of the inalienable rights that I think kids have is that they should not be kept in ignorance. So if parents are deliberately keeping their children in ignorance, I would say that the child's rights override those supposed rights of the parents. So if a child belongs to a strange cult or has a, um, a childhood which is uh, from which certain knowledge is excluded, for example, the knowledge of sex is an obvious one, then I think that the school should ignore the parents' uh, views in that area and continue to teach the knowledge and understanding that all kids must have if they're to lead, to have a good chance of leading satisfactory adult lives. But unfortunately, schools in the last couple of generations have become far less the leaders of society and far more followers. They don't seem to have the courage anymore 
and the conviction to articulate what they're doing and why they're doing it. And instead, they just want to um, keep everybody appeased, which is a euphemism for keeping them happy, I suppose. Yeah, it's a sad thing to see that uh, school leaders and school teachers have become so submissive, which is not helped by bureaucrats and politicians who are generally not helping education in too many meaningful ways at all. You know, a funny thing that it's since Federation, we've never had a Federal Minister of Education who's got the slightest background in education or the slightest knowledge of education, and yet suddenly they're put in charge of it. So the one before the current one was an expert in the Murray-Darling irrigation system. That was his background. And the current one was a farmhand and then became, I think he did an MBA from memory, and then became a political advisor to a state politician. And then suddenly he's in charge of education. He doesn't know anything about it. So that's not helping, having people like that uh, telling us all what, what we should do. It really shows the commitment to education by government, doesn't it? Yeah, in a way, the American system, despite its flaws, is better where non-elected officials can be picked out and given the portfolios. So the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defence and the Secretary of Education are not senators or congressmen or they're uh, people who are considered to be authorities in their field. still goes badly wrong sometimes. (laughs) You touched on this idea that, you know, when the, the public system comes up to the standard of being able to offer the quality of education or the variety of education to students, then we can look at kind of defunding the the private system. We look at the tensions in doing good on this podcast a lot. And one that comes up for me when thinking about this is that at Candlebark and Alice Miller, you're providing an alternative form of education for children who have either struggled in the public system or whose parents just want a vastly different experience for them. But on the other hand, there's such a great need for alternative forms of education and not enough of it is offered. And generally it's only accessible to those who can afford it rather than those who might really, really need it. What do you think is the answer if you were to be able to dream up the perfect situation in ensuring equitable access to alternative forms of education? Yeah, I'd certainly do a lot of work on training or retraining teachers so that we are much more selective about who goes into these gigs. And that would include making a mandatory starting age of 24 or 25, I would suggest, so that people aren't going straight from school to uni and back to school, that they must have other experiences. They must show that they've worked in other workplaces before they become teachers. Because I think every tribal society, to use a rather patronising word, has relied on the elders of the tribe to pass on the knowledge and the wisdom and the values. And that's a pretty sound principle, I think. But if the elders of the tribe are 22 and they haven't done anything other than go to schoolies week and then off to Trinity College, with respect to Trinity College, but uh, but uh, yeah, if they've done that, then it's uh, it does concern me. So I think we need teachers who are also people of high intelligence and by intelligence, I don't just mean book knowledge or book learning. I mean, that they have some wisdom for, not that anyone can attain perfect wisdom or complete wisdom, but they have some understanding and some insight 
into why things happen. They have to be abstract thinkers. I noticed that uh, Trump is still enjoying a popularity rating in the 40s in America. And to me, it just indicates that the concrete thinkers are still in very large numbers right around the world. And that's very concerning because issues like global pollution and environmental damage are less likely to be tackled by people who can't understand the long-term consequences of these things and the abstract implications that ensue from these things. And this is dangerous talk because some people will take offence at it. But uh, I do think the Swiss psychologist Piaget was right in categorising different stages of the development of the brain such that some people do become abstract thinkers, but many people don't. And when you understand that, you understand why politicians like Peter Dutton and Pauline Hanson and Joe Bjorki-Peterson, to go back a few years, can enjoy popularity with a minority of the population because they are themselves concrete thinkers and they speak the language of concrete thinking and they appeal to concrete thinkers. And it's very hard for a concrete thinker to understand language used by an abstract thinker and vice versa. You might as well have someone speaking Burmese to someone who can only speak Serbian because um, there's not going to be much genuine communication between them. So uh, anything that can be done to improve abstract thinking and the ability to think in the abstract, to improve wisdom and to recognize that wisdom and knowledge are different things. They can feed into each other, but the acquisition of knowledge and the acquisition of wisdom are really two different paths. And schools ignore the path towards wisdom, insight, enlightenment, understanding, and concentrate on the path towards knowledge, whereas both paths need to be pursued with real energy. I'd also look at the structure and design of schools. I mean, if I had unlimited money, I'd tear down nearly all the school buildings and reconstruct them because they are built in a way that makes them seem forbidding and alienating, even as you approach them. And so uh, to have schools that are much smaller and to have parent, uh, sorry, teacher-student ratios that are smaller would be hugely uh, beneficial in changing what happens in schools. But governments aren't prepared to engage in that kind of long-term planning. They They see it as too expensive in the short term, so they would rather cop the huge expense in the long term that we incur by having so many dysfunctional adults in our society that we have to look after, which is a very, very expensive process, not only financially, but emotionally. How does a school like Candlebark approach children who might be neurodivergent or display particularly challenging behaviours? What's different? Yeah, I don't think we do enough in that area. We've got learning support teachers who are terrific But we don't have enough of them for the students who need that kind of extra support. We do give them free time and the space to run and to, like I said before, climb trees and so on, ride bikes, ride skateboards and ripsticks. And that's really important for many of them. And we don't have this kind of pompous or aggressive or overbearing approach to children that you find in many schools, which also exacerbates the behaviours and difficulties of kids like that. But if there's one group I feel we haven't really found an answer to, it's the boys in their mid-primary to upper primary levels and sometimes before that and beyond that who don't want to sit at a desk all day and um, in a classroom and do worksheets. And we fortunately don't have 
such a tight structure as that, but we do have them sitting in their desks for long periods of time, all day, every day, pretty much, except when they're on excursions or camps. I don't feel that's the answer. And they, what they instinctively want to do is to go out into the bush and hunt and to build shelters and to uh, make fires and cook their their catch. And um, that's becoming increasingly impractical as a, an ambition. There's not much future in the uh, modern world for people with those particular skills. So we just seem to be groping a bit helplessly trying to find some path which will match their skill set and their interests and their ambitions and at the same time be helpful to them in the real world. I'm nodding my head because I have a boy in that exact age group who, yeah, does struggle to, to sit and to want to engage in that kind of deep focus in things that he's not that interested in. You know, when, when it's something that you're very interested in, obviously it's much easier to focus, but um, yeah, that, that ability to sit and engage for long periods of time can be really tough. Yeah, I came across some proverb the other day, and I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, if the bum is wriggling restlessly, then so is the brain. And that's exactly right. You watch these boys in class, and they're wriggling around and fidgeting and and kind of twitching. And um, I'm pretty sure that their brains are equally restless and uh, bored and just wanting to be doing something, wanting to be out of there and engaged in some different activity, which is more engaging and motivating for them. We had a couple of pretty old blokes come here and do bush carpentry a few times where using hand tools, many of which the kids had to make themselves, they created furniture and other things out of uh, off cuts of timber that they'd dragged out of the bush and cut with saws and so on. And wow, you've never seen kids more motivated and more engaged and more utterly switched on and passionate about what they were doing. So there are futures possible for kids like that, but there aren't too many giant multinational corporations out there looking for people like that. No, no. John, you're really involved in the day-to-day operation of Candlebark. And I know over the years as it's grown, you know, other people and other ideas come in. As somebody that's founded something, how do you let go of you know, that control of something that you've built from scratch and let other ideas and approaches in while at the same time trying to maintain the ethos or the culture of the school you've built? Yeah, it's a struggle. Um, (laughs) I had various precepts for myself when I started the school and one was I'll say yes to everyone who comes into my office. And I've generally done that. So if a teacher comes in and says, you know, can we take the kids to the Grampians? I had a phone call about an hour before we started the podcast from a teacher saying, you know, I want to take the grade threes to the Grampians and uh, can it be for five days or four days and uh, which would work better and so on. And I'm like, I didn't for a moment say we shouldn't take the grade threes to the Grampians. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Let's make it uh, these dates. And we worked out a, a week when they could do it. So, yeah, I just respond like that to anything that's not incredibly uh, dangerous or I suppose if something was ridiculously expensive, people know not to come in and ask if they can fly business class to Moscow with the grade threes for an art exhibition. Yeah, it's still hard. I mean, I feel that there's a, uh, I've got a personal 
agenda, a personal vision, whatever, to use a wanky word, which I don't want to see diluted. And there is pressure to, to dilute it. And it comes from parents and sometimes from staff members where they just keep edging towards the conservative and the known and the safe. So, for example, in the secondary school section, we had quite a number of staff who were very keen to bring in detentions for homework not done or for people who were late for class and so on. And I did point out to them at one of the staff meetings that their complaints about students' punctuality were a little odd, given that more than half of them were late for that very staff meeting where they were discussing this issue. And the conversation did kind of um, peter out a bit quick, fairly quickly after I made that point. And I mean, teachers will be late handing in their reports. They'll be late handing in documents that we've asked for and given them a deadline for. And yet they'll be very quick to complain when a student is late handing in homework. And I would think that teachers should have learned by now that detentions generally don't work. They're not very effective as a way of changing behavior. But people bring these learned behaviors from their own educational backgrounds, and they don't want to unlearn those. They, they just cling to what they are used to, ignoring the fact that they just aren't effective. Absolutely. John, can you think of somebody who has been your greatest influence in doing good over the years? Oh, yeah, probably a bloke called John Mazur, who was an English teacher in my first year of teaching. And uh, he was incredibly amazing to see what he would achieve in a classroom. And I asked if I could go and watch some of his classes. And he was a bit reluctant. And he said, well, you can, but only on condition that you don't sort of interrupt. You just sit in a corner, basically, and shut up. He didn't put it quite that rudely. But I went in there, and I was just astonished. I'd never seen anything like it, where year eight students were having a discussion, and they were listening to each other's point of view thoughtfully. They were responding thoughtfully. There was never a glimpse of anyone being bored or rude or aggressive or defensive or just coming out with kind of mindless dogma. It was a level that I'd never seen even at university half the time. I didn't see that level of engagement. And um, I started going to many more of his classes and hanging around him a lot and uh, getting ideas from him. And he taught me stuff that really changed me very powerfully as a teacher and as a person. And a little thing was um, there was a poem that he recommended and I photocopied it from a book and handed it out to the kids. And a few days later, he said to me, I found the uh, poem that you were using, you know, with your class. And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, and it was photocopied. And I said, yeah. And he just shook his head and looked sad and said, "I, I can't believe you wouldn't write it out in your own hand because it means so much more when you do that. And from then on, I've always done that. I've always even though it can take a long time, I've copied things out and uh, then photocopied them so that they're at least in my handwriting. So there is a personal link between me and the poem and then between the poem and the student. So it's just, yeah, he brought me, taught me humanity. An important uh, quality to have as a teacher. There's another teacher who told me how when he was at school, a teacher thought he was pretty selfish and unpleasant. And the teacher said to him, look, I'm going to set you a a task or a challenge. You know, there's a charity box where we encourage people to drop donations of money into. And um, he said, I'm going to ask you to for a week to drop your lunch money into that um, box instead of 
spending it to buy yourself lunch. But he said there's a condition to this. And the teacher said, what's the condition? And he said, you're not to tell anybody that you've done it. Not me or your parents or anyone else. And he did tell someone. He told me about 30 years later. But <laughs> I think by then the statute of limitations had expired, so it was okay. But I was really struck by the fact that that teacher had the wisdom to make it clear to him that giving should not be a matter of getting kudos from other people, getting pats on the back and uh, smug congratulations for your sanctimonious uh, help to others. It should be a completely um, selfless thing to do. And I thought that was a great story. Now for a bit of a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And this would be something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. So I could certainly say the environment, of course, but that's so obviously a potentially catastrophic situation that uh, I needn't say any more about it, I guess. Uh, The mental health problems of parents and the way that they affect and afflict their children is very much uh, on my mind and is a cause of huge concern and ongoing concern and fears for the future of those children. And part of that stems, I think, from an attitude towards children, which is the same attitude that women have rightly made very clear in the last couple of generations cannot continue. And this is the idea that women are the property of men. Parents believe the children are their property. And in so many cases, we see examples where parents act as though the children are their possessions, just as their car and their pair of shoes and their pen is a possession, so too their children are possessions. And the parents have every right to mould them, to shape them, to reshape them, to create whatever they want to create with these children. And I think that that's an incredibly ugly and wrong way to regard children They are individuals with their own unique ways of seeing the world. And of course, they'll be strongly influenced by their parents, but they are not possessions. And so they shouldn't be beaten. They shouldn't be reshaped and remodeled. They shouldn't be indoctrinated or brainwashed. They shouldn't be fed dogma and uh, certain points of views, uh, points of view and attitudes that are really unbalanced and prejudicial and racist or sexist or ageist or anything else. And so schools have to, and other social uh, institutions and movements have to work very hard to try to change that attitude to children and to make it very clear to parents and children that children are certainly entitled to think their own thoughts and take their own directions and paths in life and uh, to act in ways that they feel comfortable with rather than have to um, be reprogrammed by parents who have a very odd view of what children are. A lot of conflict is caused in families by those very same problems. Yeah, absolutely. John, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? We've got to look at the environment in a macro and a micro way. So yes, we can absolutely be involved in movements to protect whales and to remove plastic from the ocean and to end coal mining, but we also have to take shorter showers and turn off lights that aren't needed 
and not run the air conditioning every time the temperature rises to a certain level or drops below a certain level because I am getting a little tired of people who are very good at joining those movements and signing the petitions and making profound and often pompous speeches about the environment, but at the same time, their own life is um, not showing that they are living the but principles that they're enunciating. So, yeah, macro and micro, it's like running a school. If you're only good at doing the micro stuff, the school will wither on the vine. If you're only good at doing the macro stuff, the school will seize up like a machine and uh, smoke will start pouring out and there'll be oil dripping onto the floor. So, uh, yeah, you've got to be able to take care of the big and the little, the micro and the macro. Where's your favourite place on earth? Uh, the Australian bush, it's, I'm pretty comfortable in the bush. I love uh, being there and, um, yeah, I can walk or sit and just absorb the ambience, to use a pompous phrase. <laughs> I don't sentimentalise it or romanticise it. I remember sitting at the edge of a billabong in the Northern Territory with a busload of English teachers and we were having an evening glass of wine and looking out across the lake. And on the other side of the lake was a colony of ducks and there was complete uproar. There was just absolute chaos and ducks kind of yelling and shouting and screaming at each other and chasing each other around. And the teacher next to me took another sip of the Chardonnay and said, oh, I love nature. It's so peaceful. And I thought, right, okay. I don't think the ducks would see it that way. It's something that we do a lot is to romanticize and sentimentalize nature. And if you actually sit there and watch the insects and the birds and the reptiles and the animals, then you realize that they're not living sentimental and romantic lives. They're often displaying behaviors that we, in human terms, would call cruel, but that's not the way that those creatures understand it, we assume. So, uh, yeah, I don't like to sentimentalize it. I just like to be part of it. Yeah, beautiful. What book are you reading right now? Well, funny you should ask. I've got a pile of them here. I'm always reading about four at once. Well, yeah, the two that I've been reading in the last two days are both about – no, they're not both about education. One's an old memoir of uh, life with School of the Air in Australia, and it's a writer who went around to different states and territories and observing and uh, talk, observing schools in action and talking to students and teachers about how School of the Air – worked. Of course, the bureaucrats got hold of that romantic name, School of the Air, and renamed it School of Distance Education, which was a typically bureaucratic, unromantic, unpoetic thing to do. And the other one is New Guinea Lives, which is a collection of memoirs by people who uh, are Papua New Guinean. I've read it before, and I read it again over the weekend. It's um, There are parts that are almost unbearable to read about the way Europeans treated the indigenous uh, people of Papua New Guinea and um, yet the people writing these memoirs are incredibly forgiving and incredibly generous in what they say but the stories just make me want to um, yeah I don't know go outside and find a bucket and be ill because uh, yeah as a member of the colonial power as we were pretentiously called I am responsible at a distance but I am responsible well, John, I want to thank you for taking the time to um, 
spend with me today and talk about Candlebark and Alice Miller and your journey to where you are now. It's wonderful to see how the school has evolved over time from those very early ideas that you had as a teenager not enjoying school. Yeah, I should be grateful to my school, I suppose, for teaching me how not to run a school. (laughs) Yeah, it's perfect. Thank you again, John. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of The Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.